Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. everybody. Hi, Dr. Nick. Yes, hello, everybody. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy. It's Dr. Nick back after a bit of a break. And what better way to continue your Sunday morning, beautiful sunny Sunday morning, than to stay tuned to Triple R. Today, I'm thrilled to have in the studio, not one, not two, but all three of the Dr. Nick team. <laughs> Misdiagnosis, Prudence, dear Dr. Sonia Prudence, welcome morning. to you all the way from sunny Ballarat. I've got two words for you. Uh, Commonwealth Games. Oh, look, um, we haven't got time for that. We need to talk about that today, but such is life. Yes, all right. Yeah, well, thank you very much for making the trek down here. We have misdiagnosis. Welcome to... uh, You have a change of personal circumstances. Are you still misdiagnosis? Uh, Look, for radio purposes, I think I will remain misdiagnosis, but yes, we have now been officially pronounced Doctor and Mister. Yay! (laughs) Doctor and Mister. And you've got a special guest coming on for us later in the show, haven't you? I do. I'm very excited to speak to Mr Paul Bevan about something called cultivated meats. Have you ever heard of those before, Dr Nick? Uh, Sounds like very well-educated steak, he said, his clipboard falling off the desk. Uh, yes, well, um, it, it, they're meats that have been to university that have, um, you know, sort of very good education. No, so it, it's um, it's a very interesting area actually. And I met Paul a couple of weeks ago um, at his laboratory in Brunswick that turned out to be around the corner from my house um, and got to see sort of all the action around cultivated meat. So more on that later. Looking forward to that very much in the second half of the show. Dr Sonia, good morning. Lovely to have you back in the studio. Good morning. Great to be here. And uh, you've got a special guest for us as well, haven't you? I do indeed. I'm very excited today to speak with Branavi Ranjitha Kumaran about weight loss and weight stigma. And the way I think that I was trained to manage obesity as a GP, I think I could be doing better. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. Such, such an important topic and something which I'm woefully inadequate about. So I can't so. wait. To, so, uh, so we'll have Brand coming up shortly in the studio. But first, one of my favourite parts of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Oh, yes, it's the dog park shout-out here on 3 Triple R Radiotherapy. Prudence, who have you got for well, us? <clears throat> well, Nick and everyone, yes, look, um, as you know, yes, I came over from uh, the west part of uh, our state and um, so my regular dog park is usually around Dalesford Lake and uh, just a couple of weeks ago I went for a walk around there and met up with um, a delightful couple and their their beautiful black spoodle called uh, Reuben so mm-hmm. Liz and Jerry are the fur parents and uh, they're regulars <laughs> around that beautiful lake which is at the moment got the aurora borealis going on. So. Oh how very special <laughs> and and uh, because we do like the double dog park shout out. Why not? Yeah, it's, uh, I was down in the Richmond Park yesterday morning and I met for the first time a creature called a burn noodle or burn doodle not quite sure what it is anyone know what that is no is it it a bernie's mountain dog poodle cross 
I have always wanted a Bernese mountain dog. These most beautiful shaggy creatures, but just get a little bit too big. Well, you cross it with a poodle, you get a Bernoodle. And oh my goodness, Cookie, the wonderfully named Cookie, black and white Bernoodle, cuddly, fluffy. Wanted to say hello to everybody. Doesn't uh, doesn't molt. Doesn't molt. Oh, that right? I mean, they were in the park yesterday. Forty weeks old. What's not to love about a Bernoodle? Oh my goodness. So there you go. There's the dog park shout outs for um, for this morning. Uh, we're going to have some news. So over to you in a second. Prudence. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Prudence, you're in the news today. What have yeah, you got for well, us? Yeah, well, also, actually, I suppose in keeping with our guests today talking about sort of food and diets and things in various ways, I, was, um, I saw an article, actually, in The Guardian during the week, and it had a headline, Why is cancer striking earlier? Question mark. One answer <laughs> could be um, a diet of ultra-processed food. And okay. I thought, OK, well, this is worth a bit of a follow-up and see what data and everything that they're going with. And it's quite complicated. But I guess, yes, you know, like we have done segments in, in here in the past uh, year or so around around the positive impacts of diet, things like the Mediterranean diet. We've had a bit of a look at that. And obviously that kind of revolves around natural, raw, unprocessed foods and how they may benefit uh, things like our heart health and uh, and cancer risk and diabetes. So it's like, OK, things could be happening here. Um, and I guess the key thing, especially around cancer, is that it's it's sort of anecdotally always sort of said to be a disease of old age. You know, it's a part of ageing process, and we don't see it till later. So um, there was a, a review in Nature towards the end of last year, and they were kind of just collating all the data from the Global Cancer Observatory. Um, so I guess, yes, um, a, 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 you know, a consolidation of all the kind of cancer registries from around the world. Um, and what they've kind of demonstrated so far is there's a statistically significant increase in the in- incidence of quite a range of cancers in people in the age group 20 to 50. Oh, OK, young people. Young people. And that rates of increase have been like, one or two percent per year so we're talking 20 percent increase in things like uh colorectal cancer endometriosis esophageal gallbladder and so on so you know significant and actually in some cases quite lethal cancers are occurring earlier in life and they've they use even in the paper there they use the term early onset cancer epidemic Oh, which is kind of scary, an epidemic, I I don't know. And so this was kind of really drawing me into like, well, this is kind of sounds quite serious, which obviously it does. Um, So am I allowed, before you even go into tell us a bit more about it, to ask our young doctors in the room, if you hear about early onset cancer epidemic, theories immediately about why that might be, Dr. Sonia? Yeah, well, I'm interested... I'm interested, um, Prudence, was this an international study? Or was yeah, this, look, it's hmm. from the researchers in the US and Korea and various other places. Yeah, it's got, there's got a long author list on it. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it, it got published in Nature. Yeah, so I kind of figure it's probably authoritative to, it to a degree. It sounds like it. And, and you mentioned that we often think of cancer as a disease of old age, but of course that we know there are lots of horrible things like childhood cancers, Absolutely. ovarian cancers, and we start screening for breast cancer at 45 mm. and we talk about inherited 
cancers as well that could be younger. It's often, um, my understanding is that chronic inflammation can also predispose mm. to different cancers. And so I wonder if the processed foods you were talking about could um, be related to chronic levels of inflammation relating to cancer. I think that's quite an interesting idea, yes. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit more about these processed foods? This is something that we're going to talk a little bit more about later in the segment as well. So what do you mean by processed foods? What sort of foods are we talking about here? Well, I think we're talking about the sort of what we call ultra-processed or high-processed foods. So, uh, you know, it's kind of the opposite, obviously, of things that are pretty raw and kind of natural. These are the sorts of convenience food diets, um, things that we probably buy maybe in the supermarket that's frozen and, um, and yeah, basically has been through sort of quite a lot of work to make it what um entertaining for people to eat easy to access and um and also i suppose yeah just low cost as well so okay so supply so it's a new segment we've got a short short time tell us what you found in this study. well look i mean this is probably the key thing really um they're pointing they're pointing the finger at this but there's a huge number of other factors that could be confounding all of this of course um and you know interestingly though that also probably plays into the um inflammation as well as diet is around gut uh, microbiome so mm-hmm. they think you know there's been a lot of changes in that over the last few decades because of both environmental factors um and there's a some did you know there's something called an exosome an exosome yes they, which is, is that, that the gut microbiome on our skin well it's everything in the environment oh, okay. i learned a new <laughs> word i learned a new <laughs> word this week um yes yeah, so look at you know there are all those other factors whether it's um you know beyond beyond diet so yeah. i think we have to just bear in mind that they haven't been able to make a conclusion here but they've kind of trying to point a finger of suspicion at diet in particular did they point the finger at the non-stick coating on our frying pans uh, that one wasn't obviously listed in there, no. So if there's a take-home message from our, for, our, for our listeners from this uh, important study and they're trying to avoid being one of the 1% increase in epidemic of cancer in young people, what's the take-home message? Um, I think it's about trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle. So it's a broad lifestyle thing, really, you know, and uh, keep your weight um, good, exercise, don't smoke, of course, keep the amount of sugar and alcohol that you consume and sleep. Sleep well. Yeah, that's that what it really comes down basic to. Basic healthy lifestyle. My favourite dietary advice from Michael Pollan, the food writer. Eat food, eat fresh food, not too much, mainly plants. Eight words, that's it. Everything you need to know about diet. But we'll hear more about (laughs) diet in the next half of the segment, which will be coming up right after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr Sonia, over to you. Who's our guest you've got right next to you? Yes, I do. Thank you, Dr Nick. I'm delighted today to be speaking with Branavi Ranjitha Kumaran about weight loss and weight stigma, which is very relevant to what we just heard from Dr Prudence, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. So Bran is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist with five years of private practice experience. She specializes in disordered eating behaviors whilst utilizing a size and culturally inclusive approach alongside patient lived experience to working with her clients. Bran, welcome to Radiotherapy. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. So I want to get right back at the basics. Bran, what's the difference? Because you're both, what's the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist, and what role do they play in healthcare? 
Great question. So a dietitian uh, does clinical training, whereas a nutritionist tends to not do that clinical training. Um, I was having a conversation about this with someone this week, actually. It's a bit difficult for nutritionists because anyone who has done like a six-week course to an honours or master's degree in nutrition can be called a nutritionist. So it's not a protected title, whereas a dietitian is. Um, so the main difference being dietitians can work in hospitals and with clinical individual populations, um, whereas nutritionists tend to be in more of that public health kind of space. And like a good rule of thumb is that all dietitians are nutritionists, but not all nutritionists are dietitians. I see. That's very helpful for me to know because I often am referring patients to dietitians and nutritionists to get help around their lifestyle. Mm. And there's all sorts of nutrition information everywhere. Instagram, TikTok, I imagine I've heard from my young patients, although I don't know personally. <laughs> but but what, what role do um, dietitians and nutritionists play sort of for my patients in primary care? Yeah, so I can speak from my own experience, I guess. I get a lot of referrals from GPs like yourself. Um, So we can really tailor dietary advice to the individual. So obviously each person goes through their own experience and their own journey and it's being able to kind of meet people where they are and make food choices and decisions around food that are actually where they're at with the stresses of life or where their kind of, I guess, change brain is um, and being able to make sure that they're getting the most out of their circumstance when it comes to food and choices around food and how they feel about that and what they can take on, I guess, capacity-wise. Yeah, and meeting people where they are, I think, is I really relate to that as GPs. Mm -hmm. We're often trying to meet patients where they are and find a a management plan that suits them. And I have to say, often when I'm talking about diet and lifestyle, my plan says those two words and not much more, which is why I'm so grateful for (laughs) your input. (laughs) But I've become interested in something called the health at every size approach. And Mm -hmm. I understand there's a few different terms about that, but my my understanding is that it aims to take the focus exclusively off weight as yep. a number or BMI mm-hmm. and sort of redistribute back onto the activities and behaviours that we know improve people's health and their quality of life. But I suppose in order to fully understand this, I wanted to briefly touch on what I was taught in medical school, yeah, which was that obesity is around you know an excessive caloric intake and a sedentary lifestyle and our lifestyles today are not how our genetics set us up which was running 50 kilometers a day on the African savannah and now we're at our computers all the time Um, but we do know obesity is associated with lots of medical conditions high blood pressure diabetes and sleep disorders so I'm I'm learning more and more as I go but Mm -hmm. what do you think was missing from our healthcare teaching about health and weight because I'm finding that what I learned is not really up to date with the science today. Yeah, I think uh, I can again speak for my training as well in that sense. Um, I think there's a really big bias around weight being solely a person's control. Um, so it's an individual behaviour that they can control um, and we therefore measure health against the commitment to that outcome, if that makes sense, to mm-hmm. weight. Um, when really, when we look at zooming out, we think about how big genetics, play, like a big factor that genetics plays in maintaining weight um, and what you're sort of predisposed to in that sense. Um, we also think about the environment that we're living in. So there's a little talk about um, ultra-processed foods. Um, what's the accessibility like to fresh food? What are the, all those sort of social determinants of health aspects that then shape how someone sits in their body and what how that kind of shapes to their lifestyle um so I think personally when I was going through university um I was very much taught that weight is an outcome that we have to measure against and that is a clear indicator of health um 
And I just don't think it's as simple as that. Having worked with people in larger bodies who feel this weight stigma, which I think we'll talk about, um, it's so much more complex than just weight equal good health or like good weight equal good health, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think the messaging is really confusing, both for Mm. people in society but also for us as doctors who are trying to help people navigate the messaging. It feels like we're bombarded with messages that health um, equals weight and a very specific kind of weight and that any measures taken to achieve a certain weight are um, healthy in their own regard. And I find that um, combating that that messaging is really convoluted and and we're overwhelmed with... um, um, messages to the contrary. Yeah. Um, I, we talked to it before, but I had a look at a study that was published in The Lancet in April that um, examined 900 students across 39 universities in Australia. And these were healthcare students like we were once. So they were dietetics, nutrition students, medical students, nursing. And it found that all of these students scored really highly for something called weight bias, which was holding negative attitudes and stereotypes towards people in bigger bodies or overweight people. Yeah. Um, and sort of had really the belief that this was within their control, which we know uh, there is indisputable evidence against that now. Mm-hmm. Um, what, so we're sort of we're going a bit wrong in our training, but what is weight stigma and how does it affect people? Yeah, I feel like you've actually kind of described it really well. It's that, that concept of just bias around weight, particularly for those in larger bodies. Um, and you're right, that belief that weight, again, equals health and that someone is clearly in control of how their weight sits in their body and that they have the sole control over over, over that. Um, and I agree. I think that's just sort of an assumed when you come into a health science degree um, that, yeah, you're made to think that bad body – sorry, big body equal bad and smaller body equals good when really we know that the BMI, when it started out, actually wasn't intended to be a health marker at all. Um, but yet we're not taught to question that and we're not taught to think about that a little bit more laterally in terms of what that might look like in a genetic genetic line or, again, what someone's access to food is. Yeah, I've heard that as well, that BMI was originally used as a parameter purely for research mm. purposes but was then yeah. sort of misappropriated into our wider medical and cultural framework and now I know that we take it all the time yeah. and patients sometimes tell me they come in for a sore throat or they come in for a, a you know, a cough and and they're weighed and and things can come back to their weight more frequently than they would like. Do you ever have difficulty um, managing a patient who might not have the same sort of a a doctor that has the same outlook or the same approach as you towards um, health and weight? Yeah, I think it can be, yeah, it's a bit tricky because often when you do get a referral from a GP, one of the things they want to see is a clinical outcome Mm. is weight loss. Um, And I think that's something that, again, there's extra training around being able to advocate for your your patient and being able to say, this is not applicable to this person right now. There are so many other health behaviours that we want to think about that might result in weight loss. But for right now, the actual focus on weight itself is really risky to this patient or it's causing disordered eating or eating disorder behaviour, which is the exact opposite of what we want. We want them to maintain health in a way that's actually really relevant to them. And when you take that the focus off weight as an outcome and you start looking at those behaviours, you start to see that this person wasn't eating regularly in the first place. They weren't having enough water. They weren't moving their bodies enough. And so they had lost tune of what their appetite cues were. So when you start, again, shifting the focus to behaviours versus the outcome, it makes it a lot easier, I think, to explain to the person who's referring to say, hey, we're going to focus on this and we're seeing improvements in this and therefore as much as it's not translating to, translating to weight loss, it's still 
resulting in improved health overall. It almost feels like a losing game if you're only looking at one parameter that we know is incredibly difficult to shift. But when you broaden things up to different markers of people's quality of life, it, it, it seems like you're much more accurately able to measure progress yeah how as a GP how do I bridge the difference I mean talking about weight loss and talking about disordered eating to me feels like a uh, a minefield that makes me nervous it feels like they can overlap in a way Um, but it sounds like you're sort of advocating for if it's appropriate maybe not to focus on the number at all yeah I think from my experience with my patients as well I think often particularly people in larger bodies they have tried to lose weight 100% of the time (laughs) so they're very aware of their weight they're aware of how they're perceived and seen in society and I think when we're about to prescribe weight loss I think there should be an immediate screening for disordered eating or eating disorder behaviors or anything that's related to diets or intentionally trying to restrict their weight previously because a lot of that can come with trauma I know it's a big word but a lot of people can have really difficult relationships with their body because they've had to they've tried to manipulate it in the past based on all of the messages that they've gotten in society so I think if the initial instinct is to prescribe weight loss I think examine that a bit further with yourself and with the patient and say hey have you tried this in the past what have you tried in the past has it worked how did you feel about that was it hard was it sustainable for you Um, and if it was amazing like if it feels like it sits right with them continue but if you I think give the patient and yourself a second to reflect and see if weight loss is actually an appropriate measure of health for them um, I think it can help with that long-term health journey. It's 10.23 here on 3RRR, me, Dr Nick, and we have Brand Ranjit Kamuran, uh, a dietitian, uh, t- helping us through everything about weight and stigma. Um, we talked earlier about how the medical model of um, it's, it's all your fault because you eat too much and don't move enough is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you just explain briefly for our listeners, so where does obesity stem from if it's not someone's fault it's not the lifestyle why are we facing this epidemic of obesity yeah i mean i'm sure there's evidence for part of that but there's also a genetic a very large genetic component so one of my favorite studies to talk about is um they ran a study and interrupt me if i'm going to talk for too long um but they did a study between generations that went through the dutch famine in the first world war um and what they looked at was say the grandparents um because they had to go through a period of time where they were food restricted and they were starving their bodies actually had changes genetically to make sure that they were staying they were able to hold on to as much food as possible what they then saw was those children the generation immediately preceding them was didn't have that change in genetics so when they did the tests, didn't get passed on to them, but then it got passed on to their grandkids. So again, this is this, like, there's this idea of like zooming out and looking at the genetic knock-on effect of there's so much we actually don't know. There's so much that people, I guess, intergenerationally trauma-wise have experienced. And so it's not as simple as looking at the person and being like, your behaviour is incorrect. There is so much else that may shape that, that is genetically transferred. I'm sure that there's a lot around stresses and chronic inflammation, like you were mentioning before, um, as to how the body may store that weight. But I think we dilute that conversation too much that we make it a very simple thing to be focusing on when it really is so much more complex. 
So, I mean, obviously what we've heard is that the education that sort of all of us as medical professionals have received is inadequate when it comes to these conversations. Mm. I'm aware, however, that just because we're having this conversation now, it's not going to change every practitioner out there as much as I'd really (laughs) like it to. And I'm sort of wondering, because I know that, you know, there's for patients that come in and especially to see their GP, often people in bigger bodies don't present for healthcare as early as other people do because they're worried about weight stigma and that Absolutely. they're coming in for a cough and a cold and they're going to be weighed and measured and told that they need to lose weight. Yep. Is there a way that, you know, is there some some words or something that we can give to patients who might want to come in and tell maybe a GP who's, you know, or, or any doctor who's received the same education that we have and hasn't questioned that education? Is there something that you think would be helpful for them to say to these practitioners so that their medical concerns are addressed rather rather than just their BMI? Yeah, I think if, again, weight comes up in the conversation, I think thinking about it almost like a surgical procedure and being like, do you consent to being weighed? I think that indicates a really big green flag for people that it's not a set in stone thing, that if it is needed for whatever reason, they can either say no or they can have a blind weighing. I think that really helps make people comfortable. So knowing as a GP that it's not the most safe outcome for people to be involved with so being able to phrase it as a question as opposed to just being like hop on the scales um and I think again exploring that conversation with what their relationship is with their health I'm not under any illusion that GPs have 50 minutes to talk about this stuff with their patients but being able to just say really quickly have you attempted anything anything in the past that's worked or hasn't worked for you what do you feel could actually help with this relationship with your body That's great, Bran. I'm really looking forward to trying to um, use some of those phrases and reframe the conversation around weight. Um, My last thing would be, where can um, our listeners go if they want to learn more about sort of inclusive healthcare, health at every size? Is there somewhere, podcasts or books or anything you might recommend to patients who are interested or or non-patients, people who are interested? There's (laughs) my bias. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is a Size Inclusive Australia website that um, I think it's undergoing a little bit of change at the moment, but there's some great resources on there. Um, And I think, honestly, a little quick Google should be able to get you places. I can definitely send things in for people who want things individually. Um, But can't think of anything off the top of my head, which is really, really bad. There's a Health Not Diets book. Um, Yeah, plenty of really great resources. And there's a couple of podcasts. There's something called Maintenance Phase. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Sort of debunks a lot of um, misinformation. But I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so, so much for illuminating me about weight stigma. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, our fantastic listeners texting in like crazy, asking about, uh, don't forget the role of medications in weight gain. Of course, very, very important to another text about mental health and diet and weight. Uh, all topics we'll have to come back to another time. Really, really excellent questions. Wow, uh, that was just fantastic. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Misdiagnosis, you've got a special guest for us, haven't you? I do. I'm very excited to welcome Paul Bevan to the studio. So Paul is the founder and CEO of Magic Valley, which is an Australian food company developing healthier and delicious cultivated meat products. More on that later. So Paul previously held senior roles at NAB and ANZ and was also the co-founder of an absolute MMA, that's Melbourne's biggest martial arts gym, 
In his spare time, Paul enjoys working out, watching Aussie rules football and exploring Melbourne's amazing food scene. Welcome, Paul. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, delighted to have you in for this food-themed radiotherapy um, <laughs> episode. Um, so there was a little teaser in the bio there and we spoke about it a little bit in the intro. Can you tell our listeners, because they're dying to know, what are cultivated meats? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So cultivated meats or, or cultivating meat, is basically a sustainable and ethical way of developing the the real meat products that everyone's familiar with eating. So we start with taking a skin sample from a living animal. We take that skin sample and those skin cells uh, into the lab. We turn those into stem cells, which are able to grow up into both muscle and fat and other tissue types for that matter. And then we basically combine those together, the muscle and and fat, and create a, a real meat product. So um, now I know this is a little bit of a controversial uh, question, but are they vegan, these cultivated meats? Yeah, another great question. So by by definition, they they wouldn't be considered vegan because they are uh, from an an animal. Um, So it is is a real animal meat product. Uh, But that's not to say that, you know, vegetarians or vegans wouldn't consider eating eating the product, uh, depending on why they're vegan or vegetarian, I guess. So it's essentially a a no-kill and a much lower environmental impact uh, uh, alternative to meat, is that right? Exactly right, right. yeah. Yeah. So now, when I first heard about these cultivated meats, I have to admit that even though, you know, I have a science background and a medical background, I was a bit squeamish about the idea of sort of eating a meat that was derived in a test tube. And, you know, I'm not someone who's normally that squeamish with these sort of things. I used to be able to go and have, you know, a sort of fur or something after going to the anatomy wet labs and cutting open people. So so if I, I sort of thought to myself, if I'm feeling a bit squeamish about this, what what is everybody else going to be thinking about these meats? So I was wondering what sort of response do you normally get from people who perhaps haven't heard about cultivated meats before? This is their first time hearing about it. Yeah, for, for anyone that's completely new to it, it it's probably surprise or, or, or shock in terms of just the concept. Um, and a lot of people also confuse it for a, a plant-based meat substitute. They think I'm referring to you know a, plant, a plant-based product, which, which obviously it isn't. Um, once I explained the the process and the benefits to cultivating meat products um, a lot of people are very interested and, and intrigued by it and a lot of people really want to try it and then there's obviously a proportion of the population who has a, a similar response to, to yourself and you know oh that's a bit weird or that's not something I'm familiar with and, you know, uh, you know that, that wouldn't be for me. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed response at this stage. But I think once people understand, you know, the ethics behind it, the sustainability behind it, all the benefits to it, the health profile potentially as well, um, most people are at least intrigued and, and want to give it a try. So can you talk us through some of the key bullet points about what the benefits sort of ethically and also health-wise are of cultivated meats? Yeah, so ethically, obviously, um, there's no slaughter of animals involved. So, you know, unlike, you know, intensive animal agriculture, um, there's no no slaughter of animals. And and we don't use any animal products aside from the initial um, sampling of cells anywhere in the process. So it's as cruelty-free as as it could possibly be. Um, In terms of the the health profile, I guess there's a, a number of benefits because we're creating the products in a lab we're able to to tailor the products so 
What that could look like is, um, you know, lower amounts of saturated fat. We could add in uh, omega-3s, um, B12, for, for example. Um, and we also get a lot of requests for a higher protein product as well. So <laughs> we could, you know, also that balance, I guess, of, you know, muscle to, to fat and create, you know, a leaner product that you know, would have a higher protein content as well. So I think this is a really interesting area because as we heard at the very start of this show, there is a link between highly processed foods and cancer. And when people are thinking about these cultivated meats, I think one of the things that might pop into their mind is, is this just a very processed product? Now, I mean, we've obviously spoken about this a bit off air, but can you um, sort of talk me through what sort of processed foods, what people normally think about when they're thinking about processed foods and how cultivated meats sort of differ from that? Yeah, I guess when we're talking about processed foods, people think, you know, a lot of change to the original product um, and, you know, what that might go through, you know, what's being added to it, um, you know, what processing it's going through. Um, I guess with cultivated meat, the... Um, uh, the, the raw meat product itself is, is not going to be highly processed at all because we're simply just growing up the, the individual components, so such as muscles, such as fat, um, as they would naturally uh, grow uh, in, in an animal's body and, and combining them at the end. So there's not going to be a whole lot of processing in, in that part. There might be um, some uh, potentially, you know, plant-based products or products that already exist as, as food products to provide a little bit more um, texture or, or structure. And that could be something, um, you know, like uh, uh, a soy protein or an alginate or, or something like that. So th those products aren't going to be high, highly processed. When we're talking about um, value-added products that, you know, most people are familiar with, whether that's, you know, a burger or a pie or a, or a sausage, well, obviously they're going to be slightly more, slightly more processed. So um, it really depends on you know um, the, the end product in terms of how much processing um, goes into it. But uh, in and of itself, cultivated meat is not going to be overly processed. Now, one of the things that I was initially worried about um, is sort of this idea of risk of pathogens in something like processed meat, that you're in a labor laboratory setting and, you know, would it be possible that other things get into these meats and how do you know that they're sort of safe to eat? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. We, we do a lot of screening right throughout the process uh, and, and that begins with the, the animals that we take the initial cell samples from. And so um, that happens, you know, yeah, as I said, right, right throughout the process. So the, the lab is a very, you know, safe and, and sterile environment. So I would uh, envisage that the, the risk of, um, you know, pathogens or foodborne illnesses and things like, you know, obviously faecal bacteria, for example, that, you know, you're going to have in, in a slaughterhouse environment just don't exist within the lab. And so um, the, the certification of the lab itself is, is very strict as well. You know, we're in a, a PC2 lab, which you know, stands for physical containment too. And so it's a, it's a very uh, sterile environment. So, look... I think um, it's a much safer environment um, compared to, you know, how meats are currently produced. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I, uh, as someone who did a bit of stem cell research as a master's, I'm trying to imagine how um, the meat actually looks. So can you tell me what, what does the final cultivated meat product look like? Are we looking at, you know, a, a beyond burger type patty or a steak or what are we looking at? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. A lot of people think we're growing up, um, you know, whole animals or, you know, whole 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 cages of ribs or whole whole steaks and things like that. that that's not actually what we're doing. So we're growing up the, the muscle, you know, by itself. We're growing up the fat by itself. Um, at the moment, we've just created what we would call an unstructured product, which is a, a mincemeat product. So um, when we grow up the muscle and fat, it, it literally goes through a mincer at 
at the end to, to create that product. And so it does look like just, you know, minced meat um, as you would typically find uh, you know, on a supermarket shelf today. So an obvious question, Paul, if we want leaner food, why would you put fat in there? Why would you just have the full lean meat? Well, we, we could certainly do that. I think um, uh, a lot of people would actually like a little bit more fat because a lot of the taste and flavour comes from the fat in, in, in terms of meat. Um, but I guess the benefit that we've got is we're, we're able to tailor those uh, products and tailor the nutritional profile to whatever anyone wants. So we can have a, we can have a leaner product, we can have a fattier product. Um, we've really got that flexibility, which means we can you know, really produce you know, tailored nutrition. It's a really interesting point. Is as, as quite a keen cook, I'm aware that what fat does is it actually coats the taste buds and allows the flavours of the other things like the lean meat to come into contact with the taste buds and then be experienced and without the fat often you miss a lot of the flavours of the other meat so it's not that the fat itself has the flavour but it makes the flavour available to the taste buds so there you are that's just a little tip from the cook behind the mic prudent <laughs> yeah well I just wanted to continue really with that yeah you know what, what is the consumer experience and okay you're saying it's sort of like you know it's more like a mince type product and I mean, I think for, for some meat eaters, that's right, there are certain other elements to it, which is around the texture and somebody who wants a, a rare steak. Presumably also, like, there's, there's blood in there, which also adds to flavour and probably quite a... Is that quite an important component of the uh, perception of flavour of meat, as, as just as there is, you know, fat as well? And do you simulate that in some way? Yeah, there's, it's obviously very intricate, um, you know, creating, creating meat products. Um, there's obviously, as you mentioned, all those different components, a lot of connective tissue um, as well, but bone obviously in, in, in certain products as well. What we've done with the, with the mince uh, meat products are probably the uh, simpler way of, of developing at least a, a, an initial product. Um, once we get to, you know, developing, um, you know, steaks and, and chops and things like that, there's a lot of uh, intricacy around the, muscle fibres, the direction that they run, um, how the, the fat uh, and the, the muscle combines along with the connective tissue, which gives you a lot of that, that, that texture. And so for us, creating that unstructured or, or minced product is, is the simpler, uh, at least first product. And we're probably a few years away from you know, developing those, those more structured products that will right. obviously yeah. you know, require a little bit more effort and technology in terms of that. Absolutely. There's a, oh, sorry, Prince. There's a great question come through from the text line from Paul in Brunswick. He's saying, uh, do you need to take a new sample from a live animal each time or can you use the same sample from the existing one that you took in the first place? Yeah, great question. So with the technology that we use, we never have to go back to the animal again after taking that initial sample. Um, the stem cells that we turn those uh, samples into are, are what's called an induced pluripotent stem cell. I'll say that again, what? An induced <laughs> pluripotent stem cell so so that stem cell will, will multiply indefinitely so no we never have to go back to the animal again and, and we can turn those cells as i said into any cell or tissue type i gotta love those stem cells <laughs> misdiagnosis so the other thing i wanted to talk a little bit about is something that i think all of us in this room are quite frightened about which is antibiotic resistance now we know a lot of antibiotic resistance a lot of it comes through the agricultural industry and the use of antibiotics in um, agriculture can you talk to us a little bit about how cultivated meats might in some ways sort of help that problem. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, you know, antibiotics are you know, widespread in intensive animal agriculture and they have to be used because the animals are kept in such you know, close con confinement. It's, it's really easy for you know, bacteria and diseases to, to spread and that, can, you know, that rapidly can wipe out you know, um, flies.
flocks or, or herds uh, in terms of uh, animal agriculture. And so antimicrobial resistance, yeah, really, really is a, a huge problem. And so... Because we're not confining animals in, in, a, in a tight space, um, we're not, we don't have any animals for, for, for that matter, um, and we don't use any antibiotics, so we basically eliminate that, that risk entirely. And so it, it really will be a massive contributor to combating you know, antimicrobial resistance. Which I think is, you can't really be understated, sort of this problem at the moment in, you know, in the healthcare industry. So, I, I mean, I think for me there are so many things that are sort of such huge pros for cultivated meat. There's the, you know, the health implications, being able to tailor the product itself, the antimicrobial resistance. Um, there's, and then there's, of course, the ethical and environmental impact. So can you talk to us a little bit about the environmental impacts of cultivated meats, what's happening at the moment and how this might play a role? Yeah, absolutely. So if we compare the, the cultivated meat process to you know, traditional uh, animal agriculture, we, we use a lot less water, we obviously use a, a lot less land and we produce far less greenhouse gas emissions as well. So it, it's certainly a much more um, sustainable uh, process when we're talking about developing uh, meat products. Um, but like any new industry, it's going to take you know, time for, for all of that to, to come to fruition. Uh, initially, you know, we'll only have a uh, capacity to be able to produce you know, small amounts. I think Australia is the third highest uh, meat consumer per, per capita as well. So it's obviously a really huge demand there. Um, and so, look, we're, we're, it's going to take time for us to, you know, ramp up production and have that, that mass effect in terms of sustainability. I think that the larger opportunities are in the, the more developing countries such as, you know, China and India that have got, you know, rapidly expanding populations and they just don't have the resources or the land for traditional animal agriculture. And so I think we can have a, you know, a huge impact globally. And what is happening internationally in the cultivated meat space? I mean, I know some very exciting things have been happening in the US recently around um, FDA approvals and in Singapore as well. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so so there's only three products, uh, cultivated meat products are approved for, for sale across the world um, and they're all cultivated chicken products. Uh, as you mentioned, one in Singapore uh, and two companies in, in the US. Um, Cultivated meat will be regulated on a on a product by product basis because every company uses you know different uh, processes and, and procedures for developing those products. So there's never going to be like a blanket approval of cultivated meat um, in any country or, or, or worldwide for that matter. Uh, and as you mentioned, yes, the the FDA and USDA have recently approved two uh, cultivated chicken products from from two different companies, um, which is a really big milestone for the industry. The US is obviously you know a massive con- consumer market. Uh, and not only that, the regulators in, in other countries often take their lead from what the FDA and, and USDA approve. And so as a milestone for the industry, that's huge. In Australia, we're, we're regulated by Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. Um, we're considered a, a novel food product and, and fit into the existing framework. And it's around a nine to 12 month approval process um, to have the products regulated. We're looking to enter that process towards the end of the year with a view to commercialising products by the end of 2024. Uh, Paul, can I ask you, how scalable is this? I mean, a texter has come through saying, you know, is this still going to be environmentally friendly if we're trying to feed billions of people this same way? And uh, the obvious question to me is, uh, it's one thing to have a couple of scientists with a Petri dish growing a little bit of mincemeat in the laboratory. How do you scale this up to produce thousands or millions of tonnes of edible food? Yeah, it's a great question and, and one we get asked a lot. I think a lot of the initial companies in the cultivated meat space were using older technologies and you know, having to purchase uh, you know, existing pieces of equipment for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, now that the, you know, we're only a, you know, a few years older now, but you know, 
Cultivated Meat's probably been, or at least the concept's been around for nearly 10 years now. They're actually companies specialising in producing um, consumables for the cultivated meat industry specifically and, and also equipment. And the, the biggest piece of equipment uh, is, the, is, the, is the bioreactor. Now, the bioreactor is what we cultivate the, the cells in, hence the term cultivated meat. Um, and in a lab, you know, we would be using... Uh, well, at least initially, I guess when we're starting off, you know, we're using uh, plates, we're using wells, um, we're using flasks uh, and that type of thing until we get into larger bioreactors. And so a bioreactor is simply, uh, it's basically um, uh, like what you would uh, brew beer in, for example. And so it's, it can either be a, you know, a glass or, or a stainless steel container. Uh, and the cells grow up in those. And the technology that we use, the cells grow in suspension, so they attach to themselves. And obviously the larger... Uh, bioreactor you have the more mass you can get out at the end and so what we need to do is is scale out in terms of the the bioreactors that we're using and also scale up so have larger bioreactors and have more of them and create a continuous process that way and so it is going to take a while uh, but it is definitely a a scalable technology. Just a a quick question there because I mean this is fascinating and obviously the potential for these products over time could be huge with great benefits Um, but I'm also wondering like I live out in the country I'm surrounded by beef cattle and sheep and all sorts of things and people who you know make a living that's that's their jobs that's their livelihoods how how do you sort of see perhaps you know um working with um, conventional agriculture and so on to introduce these products and perhaps grow that market do you see it ultimately as you know something that's going to replace them or it becomes um complementary Mm. Uh, obviously, it's it's going to take a, a quite a long time. You know, we're obviously a, a new industry, and it's going to take a long time for us to you know get production up to the capacities to even get anywhere close to to what we're producing at the moment. Uh, we have a lot of conversations, uh, particularly with uh, farmers with uh, you know smaller smaller farms. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of you know really large industrial farms mm. as as well. A lot of them are really interested in either, you know, adopting the technology if they can and how they could incorporate that into what they're doing or also look at, um, you know, transitioning to, you know, other forms of, of, of farming and, and agriculture and whether that's, you know, producing, um, you know, feedstock as components that go into uh, the media, which is what we add to the, to the cells to get them to, to, to grow um, and, and other parts of the process. So there's, there's a bit of a mixed reaction that, that we yeah. get. Um, I guess a lot of it, as we've found is is it can be generational as well the younger generations are really looking to you know adopt technology into their business that could make it easier or, or more profitable and i guess you know um this is a a, a a really large stereotype but the older generations are a bit more resistant to, to new technology and and, and changes Absolutely. in that regard a bit like the electric cars are going to destroy the weekend because we won't have four-wheel drives yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. And what's, what's going to happen that's right to the aussie barbecue <laughs> there's a great text comes through I'm not sure I quite understand it, but say, is the matter alive? <laughs> but I think what that says to me is the uncertainty about what this whole process means. I mean, are we producing some sentient creature that we're then re-slaughtering in a lab, which uh, I'm not quite sure if that's really what the text means. Uh, but to me, what is the, the question is about uncertainty. This is a whole new world. How are we going to convince people that this is an OK product, safe and appropriate? Yeah, there's, there's, we get a lot of that, and, and we get a lot of questions about 
about, you know, are we growing up whole animals in the lab and where are the animals and what are you doing to them and, and all that sort of thing. But I can assure everyone that 100% that, that that's not the case. Um, we just re- really are just growing up the components that, that make, make up the, the, the final product. And there's obviously a really large education piece for us to, to go through, you know, with the consumer. Uh, we try and be as transparent as we possibly can with the, with the process from beginning to end so everyone actually, you know, can understand the process uh, and see what's happening and, and, and they can make their, up their own mind whether it's a, a product that they're interested in um, or, or not. And I think that's such a good point, Dr. Nick, because when I was first sort of introduced to this, I actually had the opportunity to go and try some of these products at the lab. I had to sign this huge document saying that, you know, this wasn't approved yet. And I went, you know, what on earth am I going to eat? What is this sort of, you know, test tube piece of gristle or something? Is this what I'm walking into? And I consider myself to be someone who's relatively open-minded about these things. And this was sort of the main reason of wanting to get Paul onto the show, because I think it's an area that is, you know, it has so many benefits, you know, environmentally, um, there's nutrition elements to it, there's the antimicrobial resistance of, um, elements to it as well. But it's one that I just hadn't heard a conversation about but don't before. keep us hanging, misdiagnosis. What was it like? What was it like? Look, to be totally honest, in some ways it was a bit of an underwhelming experience because it just tasted like meat. Oh. And I think this is, you know, this is what we're sort of getting with this is that I, there was all this sort of, you know, it's coming from a test, oh, it's coming from this area and where is it coming from? And where are the animals? And, and it's sort of a, a scraping of an ear cell that then turns into a, a dumpling was what I had. Right. It was just a really nice dumpling. Like it wasn't, it didn't blow my mind away. What blew my mind away is what happened beforehand. And I think that is kind of in some ways that is the, the crux of, of this product is that it's not meant to be a new mind-blowing piece of, you know, sort of culinary experience it's meant to be a better option for something we already know and understand so there was no uh, petri dish on the palate with an aftertaste of bunsen burner <laughs> not quite no <laughs> well thank you so much for coming in paul it's been a fascinating conversation and it's certainly got the text line buzzing which we absolutely love in here and lots of questions from our panelists as well so thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of this novel technology with us we're very excited to see where it goes from here no problem at all thanks very much for having me uh, have we been talking with paul Bevan, who's the CEO and founder of Magic Valley, telling us where the magic is in that valley. Fantastic. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So I just want to know from you, Prudence and Dr. Sonia, are you up for it? Cultivated meat? Absolutely, I'd love to try it actually. I think the idea of a meatball or something, you know, would be great. Dr. Sonia? Yeah, I'm I'm very interested. My partner is a keen cook and I'd love to see what he would do with the fat and the meat. But um, my dad's actually a vegetarian religiously, so I'd be very interested to see what he would think about that kind of meat. So, absolutely. Oh, interesting question, right? The, uh, the sort of religious aspect of it and whether something about... What do, what do you reckon, misdiagnosis? I feel like when it comes to cultivated meats, it seems very simple on the surface. It's sort of, you know, test tube meats. and But there are actually so many layers to this sort of this new technology. And I think it would come down to personal preference about whether, you know, you feel like you want to eat it. I mean, maybe I'll throw it back to Paul. Do you eat these products, Paul? <laughs> Come on, Paul. What? You've got 10 seconds to answer that question. I, I think if I was going to eat products, I would definitely eat cultivated meat products. So, 
So the last text that comes through, we'll finish it. Cultivated meat is a fantastic idea as a consumer. I'd buy it in a flash. So there you go. Uh, it's time to wrap up, and it's just time to say a huge thank you to our wonderful studio guest, Paul Bevan uh, from Magic Valley, also to dietitian Branavi Ranjit Kumaran, and to the whole multi-talented Dr. Nick team. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.